right, so we're going to talk a little bit about what we've been talking about. Um, something that Christina mentioned at the beginning of her testimony, I thought was exactly kind of the direction that we're going in with the sermon today, which is she said something at the beginning, which was effectively, thank you, God, that my story is also your story. And she said it in passing, but it's actually a very profound statement that God is writing a story with your life. And there's this opportunity that we have to invite him in in real and tangible ways such that we're writing a singular story or, or at least a story that belongs to two, two or three or more, but doesn't just belong to you, but also belongs to Almighty God. It's not a given that you write your story with God. It's an invitation that we get to make, and we get to invite him in, and we get to write this, this life together. And so what we're going to do, we've been, for those who are new, we've been going through the book of Matthew, verse by verse, line by line. We're in chapter 26, and we're going to look at the same story that we looked at last week from a different angle. And so if you want to turn there, feel free. Uh, if you want to just listen, that's fine too. It'll be up here. Um, but let's dive into the passage. Let's read it through. And just as we go through this, I want you to take the angle of Jesus in the story this time, rather than the angle that we hit last time, which was the disciples' angle in the story this time. So have an extra special focus on kind of Jesus' experience of this, and then I'll catch, I'll catch us up to where we left off, and we'll dive in on Jesus' side of things. So we start in verse 36 here. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here, while I go over, while, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found again, or he found again, uh, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. When he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So last week we talked about how, from the disciples' standpoint, they have this moment where Jesus starts to turn kind of serious on them when they're eating uh, a festival dinner one night. And it's the Passover dinner, and they're sitting around the table like they had done for a couple years with Jesus, except this time there's a turn at the end where he starts talking about his impending death, and he starts talking about this cup of salvation that is his blood that needs to be poured out for the sins of the world. And so they start to hear this language about the cup of his blood or the cup of his salvation, the cup of his blood being poured out for the salvation of the world. 
And they start to realize that this thing feels like it's coming to a head. He's been talking about his impending death for, uh, for a while now, and now he starts to get more detailed and more serious about it. And then from that scene, they find themselves vowing to each other, just promising Jesus and one another that they would never turn from him. They've been walking with him closely for three years, and they were like, no, no matter if death comes, we will not turn from you. We will not leave you. We will not forsake you. They go to the garden, and they have this moment where their will to do something is so strong. They want so badly to be there for Jesus. They want so badly to obey the thing that he's asked them to do. Their will is like fully engaged, saying, I really want to do this, and they kind of blow it, right? They, they end up falling asleep. They can't even just stay awake for an hour and pray in line with what Jesus would have them do. And so we talked last week about the gift of self-control. The beauty and the wonder and the advantage of having the gift of self-control. Basically, the gift of self-control says, what I want to do, I do. Right? It sounds so stupid to say it, and it sounds so simple, but I think if we're honest with us, and for those of us who have really tried to walk out like really great lives where we follow God, we understand that you need a gift in order to have self-control, that it's actually much easier said than done. And so we talked about Jesus's prescription for this, this moment where there's temptation coming, and he's asking them to do something where their spirit is willing, but their flesh is weak. And what he says to them is, pray. Watch and pray. Alert yourself and pray. And so you see this verse in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit, or one of the fruits that they talk about of the Spirit is self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. And then you think about, okay, well, like, how do you get to a place where you have the fruit of the Spirit? It's kind of a weird statement because fruit kind of just grows off of the vines, right? An apple tree doesn't seem to need to, like, really strive and do something unnatural to produce apples, It feels like the natural outflowing of being plugged into the Spirit. That's the idea of the imagery of the fruit of it. So in Galatians, when it talks about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control being the last one, um, these lines of things, it's, it's the promise of what life looks like naturally when you're walking in the Spirit. And so how do you walk in the Spirit? And we looked at prayer as one of the central things. And it's like, seriously, did I need to come to church for you to tell me, like, that I need to pray? You know, like, that's the the ending point. There's nothing more to it than that. Well, kind of, yeah. I mean, like, I think if we were all doing it all the time, as if it was a key to walking in the depths of the Spirit, and walking in the depths of the Spirit led to all of these beautiful things, this, like, laundry list of things that you're like, yes, I want that, yes, I want that. Ooh, number three sounds good, too. And you, like, go down, and you're like, man, that's the life that I want. But I think most of us oftentimes feel like our Christian life feels more like a civil war than a natural outflowing of these things. You know, oh, faithfulness. It's just such a nice outflowing from my life. You know, it's like, no, sometimes we've got to rally and rally hard to get into a place of faithfulness. You know, patience. Does that just feel like something that's oozing off of your vines? Or is it something that you feel like, man, I've got to wrestle myself back a lot? You know, like, the, again, the aspirational life that we're talking about of the fullness of God is one where discipline is super important, but it's not the world that you live in all the time. 
discipline is your safety net, but a natural life of living out and walking with God in the fruits of the Spirit is your daily experience. And then you have moments like Jesus in this passage where you're called to do hard things. It's not just like everything's super easy everywhere you go because you're flying high in the Spirit. God asks you to do hard things. You need to endure and you need to like muscle through in times. But the, the characteristic of the Christian life is not this like weird civil war one where it's like, oh, I'm battling against myself constantly and I need to just like whip my body into shape. It's like, no, no, no. That is the fruit of a prayerless life. That's what that is. That, is, that experience is, is, is a fruit of a prayerless life. And so what I wanted to do was challenge you in that way and challenge me in that way of like the stakes really matter here. Like our inner life and our experience of life and how we do this, like the disciples here. You know, it occurred to me when I was reading through this passage, Jesus was inviting them into a beautiful moment with him. Well, not beautiful for him, but like an opportunity. He's got three best friends in the world. He's going into his hardest moment. And he invites only them, not even the other nine, to be there with him in his hardest moment of life. Talk about what Christina was talking about in terms of writing a story with humanity. This is God communicating his need to his friends to be there for him in his hardest moment. And they weren't able to do it because they weren't prayed up. I'm not trying to get us into the, like, world of regrets, you know, like the disciples look back and be like, oh, I missed my opportunity. I can't do it. You know, like, that's not how I'm encouraging us to live. But I do think we need to just stop and look at this and be like, they had the opportunity to be the three people in the world that helped Jesus through his hardest situation and get to remember that with him forever. That would be awesome. Instead, they slept through it. Actually, don't even know how they knew what he was praying because they were like snoring, right? Like they could have had this front row seat to what was going on. Instead, they got an extra hour of sleep. And so this is the disciples' side of the experience. And self-control and prayer was so central to it. I want to now talk about Jesus' side of this story. What was the experience going on here for Jesus? So one of the things as we look at this passage is that this is one of the first times that we see Jesus struggling with doing the will of God. This is a weird thing, right? Like everywhere else in the scriptures, you see Jesus kind of living the life like I was telling you before, where it's like the fruit of the Spirit. It feels very natural to follow God. He's like healing and casting out demons and talking in deep revelation, and it feels like it's kind of just flowing out of him. And then we get to this moment where we have this thing where it's like my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That is some serious sorrow. In fact, there's two words for sorrow. There's the there's the, the Greek word that is just sorrow, and then there's this like super version of that word where they add a little thing onto the end, which is like all around, right? This is like the sorrow all around version. He's like overwhelmed with it. He's overcome with it. And so we have this moment where Jesus is in like a really bad place, and I can't think of another place in the scriptures where Jesus is in a really bad place. And then we hear what he's praying in the first one, and if 
if we're kind of aspiring theologians or just kind of like got our antenna up, there's some weird stuff in here. So like the first part is, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Now, is anybody else struck by the if it is possible part of this? Like, is he praying to the almighty God that he knows so well? The if it is possible part of this thing makes it really interesting. You know, like I've heard, I've heard like, philosophers say, if God is sovereign, can he make a rock that he cannot move? You know, it's like, there's kind of a little bit of that in here, where it's like, if it's possible, you know? So that's one kind of area that we definitely need to to work through. Um, But then you also have this, it seems like there's kind of like multiple layers of will here too, which is like, man, it doesn't it's not my will, not my will, but yours be done. But I will that your will be done more than I will what I will. Do you see what I'm, you know what I'm saying? It's like there's like these multiple layers of will here. We got like the peanut gallery cracking up in the back. It's all right. It's true. It's, it's strange. It's like, okay, I have one will, but then I have this other will that supersedes that will, and this one feels more like my ultimate will. So, so not this will, but this will be done, which is also your will. And man, doesn't that feel like life sometimes? I mean, that totally feels like my life sometimes, where I've got like this thing going on inside where I'm like, man, I really don't want to do this. But what I don't want to do more is like live in the regret of not following my king. And so, while I don't want to do this, I want to do this less, and so I guess this becomes my will and not this. But it's this really interesting thing, because, like, this is Jesus, right? And so Jesus is having a real, authentic moment with God. And I love that Jesus is having a real, authentic moment with God. Because I need Jesus to have real, authentic moments with God for him to be tangible for him to be real. You know, I heard it said once that if Jesus just lived a crazy life, it would be one that we could look at and be wowed by. But he doesn't just live a crazy life. He lives a crazy life as a human filled with the Holy Spirit. And as a human filled with the Holy Spirit, he has a lot of the conflict that goes on with us. And therefore, it's not just that we're supposed to be impressed with his life, it's supposed to be a model for our life. That's very different. Jesus could have just lived in a way where he's just impressive and he's over here as a model, but he's not that. He's real, and he's interesting, and he's complex, and the Bible doesn't hide his complexity, and he serves as a model for us in all of life. Now, the thing that I want to dig into in this is, did you know that the word agape, it's kind of one of those, like, if you've ever gone to church for a while— Agape is one of those words that you'll hear in the Greek. It's like, you know, it's unconditional love of God. That's what it is. It's like, live in the agape of love. The, 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 the actual core of this word means something that's very specific and very different. It actually means preference. The core of the word agape has to do with choice. It has to do with your will. Choosing something. So it's really interesting because in this passage, we don't explicitly see anything about the love of God. 
But what we see is agape fully in action. This is what agape looks like in action. Because agape, at its core, means a choice to prioritize someone else. That's what it means. G.K. Chesterton talked about this thing where the powerful thing about choice is that if you choose one thing, you necessarily choose not a whole bunch of other things. The reason why choice is so powerful and why its essence, like the, the, the word love, agape, boils down to the essence of choice is because it's a statement of prioritization at its very core. For example, if you choose to get married, you choose one person, but it's not that you've just chosen that person. You've chosen that person to the exclusion of everybody else. And it's to the exclusion of everybody else that actually makes the choice so radical and so intense and so powerful. That's what, that's what makes it so crazy. You can't love your spouse and love in that way all these other people. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It breaks down at its very core. And the thing that's crazy about walking with God is this is oftentimes what the walk with God looks like. It looks like you can't do the will of God and do the will of you. But the reason why doing the will of God is so powerful is oftentimes because you can't do the will of you. That's why it's love. And so I'll give you an example. Uh, there was this one time I was at work, and I'll, I'm going to tell the short version because a lot of the people in here have, have heard this story before, but this is a great story. I love it. <laughs> because I'm not living through it anymore. Which is oftentimes how these stories go, right? It's like, man, it was so brutal, and then I got to the other side. So I was at work. I was new to sales. And this deal floats in by the provision of the Lord out of nowhere and lands in my lap for $50,000, which was the selling price of this deal, which happened to be my monthly quota. Deal comes out of nowhere. I did no work. And I'm like, praise Jesus. Here we go. Game on, right? Commissions, hit the, hit the number, look good in front of my boss, all that stuff. And so I'm excited about this. I go home, and somewhere along the line, I feel like the Lord tweaking me and doing that thing inside of just like, I don't want you to have this deal. I want you to give it away. I'm like, oh. Now this like blessing from above turns into this thing that is like, oh no, I've got to wrestle myself into this, right? So the first thing that comes through my mind is there's no way that I'm doing this. The second thing that comes through my mind is I think my boss will probably fire me if I give it away because it's not just my bookings that I'm giving away to some other group. It's his too. So it's literally money out of his pocket. And then I think, and he's going to lose all, cred all credibility that I might have with him is gone. And so none of that was true, by the way. I mean, none of the, the gravity of the situation ends up being true. But if you've ever been through one of these moments, somehow the thing gets amplified so much. Like the amplification is astounding when you look in the rearview mirror and you're like, really? Like, is that really what I thought was going to happen? You know, like the Lord prompts you to talk to somebody on the street and it's like, what if they just straight up like scream in my face and like tell me I'm worthless and make this whole scene? It's like, is that really going to happen? Like, no, it's probably not. But it felt like that. 
And so I wrestled with this thing and talked to Suki about it. This is the thing that's like wonderful about living in community, in this case marriage, is right away I tell her about it, right? Because I don't want it to be in the dark. I don't want this to be a thing. Like I want, if this is really God, like I want to do it. And so I tell her, and she goes, cool, like I'll pray with you and blah, blah, blah. And so I pray, and like a couple days later, I'm like, I cannot kick this thing. It is like all over me. God's on my back, and it feels terrible. And she's like, just give the deal away, you know? Like, what are you doing? It's like, this has happened a lot in our marriage, by the way. Just give it away. And so I go in, and right before I'm about to head into my boss's office, my head starts spinning. Like, I don't know what was going on, whether it was like my own internal battle or the attack of the enemy or whatever, but like, it felt like I was dizzy. It felt like I was going to die. I mean, it really got super intense. And so I went out. I left my building, and I went out, and there's like a tennis court in the back of it. And I was like sitting there, sitting against the chain-linked fence, feeling like I was going to die. So weird, right? In retrospect, it's so weird and irrational. But in that moment, I could not obey God and not overcome. I couldn't obey my master and love him in the way he was asking me to love him and not do this thing. And the intensity of it all, I have to imagine for God, was part of what made the sacrifice when I finally did it so pleasing to his sight, right? And so I got up from the tennis court, and I was literally spinning. And so I go into my boss's office, and I sit down, and I say, you know, hey, James, I got this bluebird that I talked to you about. I'm forecasting it in. And uh, I don't feel good about keeping it, and I, and I think I, want, I need to give it away. And he goes, you know how much the commission is on that, right? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I did the calculation. And he goes, okay. You're, you're, you're still on the hook for your quota, though. That's what he said. He's like, okay, you're still on the hook for your quota. And I'm like, of course I am. And so I left, and I'm like, what was the big deal? Are you kidding me? Like, how had I worked that thing up into what it had become? But this is a large part of writing our story with God. The Lord has made us finite beings. The Lord has made us in a way where we have limited capacity all over the place. And so the choices that we make are really hard by the nature that there's a limitation on it. Like, if I choose to be a pastor, I can't choose to work for some other nonprofit that I want to work for. If I choose to do what I do for work, it means I can't do something else for work. Our life is filled. The, the, the thing about choice that's so crazy is that it's a choice for something that's usually to the exclusion of a bunch of other stuff. And I think what happens for us when we get into these moments is we get so caught up in the exclusion part that the exclusion part eclipses the choice part, right? Like you get so overwhelmed with the cost of the thing that you almost have lost track as to what you're actually doing on the other side of that. And it's so intense. I'm sitting there on the tennis court swirling and nothing about my statement of my love for God and my kick to the teeth of the spirit of mammon was happening on that tennis court moment. But that's what was really going on is I was going through a test of can you handle finances in a way that's pleasing to me? Or when you start to get an opportunity to have them, are you going to bow down to them and start listening to, to finances as your provision? 
And so God was sending me through this moment where it was like, show me that you can triumph in an area of financial victory and also just make a huge statement of love. And so at, at agape's core, that's what we're talking about. And so when you look at what Jesus is doing here, this is the ultimate statement of agape love for his father. In fact, the scripture says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is the ultimate statement of agape love from the father as well. In fact, I would propose to you that I'm more impressed with the father's sacrifice than I am even with Jesus' sacrifice. As a parent, I can tell you right now, if, if the choice was kill myself or kill my child, it would not be a choice. It'd be very, very easy. There wouldn't be the wrestling thing inside. I wouldn't be in deep anguish like Jesus would be in this, in this thing. Of course, it would be hard, but if I knew that that's what it was, it would be no choice. That is like, it's like every parent in the room goes, yes. The agape love that is shown from God is astounding. It's astounding. A father crucifying his son for the sake of the world. God so loved this crazy, messed up world that he gave his perfect son to go through this horrid, rip Jesus in half, almost killed him by the very sorrow that he's going through moment, and then he's got to walk it through. That is crazy agape love. Now, the crazy thing about this is the invitation that we get constantly in life, I think this is nuts, of choosing one thing to the exclusion of the other and having that be an amazing expression of love for God. Do you know why that's the call on our life? Do you know why that's our experience of walking through this life? Because it's his experience. That's God's experience. That's God's experience of love. That's what we've just talked about here. Even Almighty God, if it is possible, Jesus says, even Almighty God is in a situation where he chooses one thing because of what he gains, but not because he can, he can do it some other way, or there's, not a, there's no— it, if there was a better way, he probably would have taken it, right? If there, wasn't, if there was a better way and he didn't take it, he's a ruthless God who killed his son for no reason. Let's put it that way. And so in a weird way that I'm almost theologically hesitating to even say, it feels like for Almighty God, he had a choice to make that cost him a bunch. Yes, he owns the cattle on every hill. Yes, he owns every piece of gold there is. Yes, he owns every life that was ever created. But somehow in this moment, the agape version of love where there's a choice and a preference to choose one thing to the exclusion of another, it actually sits with God. And so he models out for us what true love looks like. And so the reason we as disciples walk this life or the invitation for this life is to walk like this is because God did it in the most extreme. Jesus did it right behind him in this moment. And we're disciples. And the life that we're called to is to make one where there's a radical decision for somebody else at your expense.
that, that's the invitation to discipleship in, in a large degree. In John 15, 9, it says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Now this sounds good, right? I just gave you a bunch of bummer, feeling like a bummer news. This one sounds good. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Wow, that's a lot of love. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love, I have told you this so that, your jo- that my joy may be in you and that m- your joy may be made complete. My commandment is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. Now, the amazing thing about this is when you get married and you stand up there at the altar— this is the ultimate, like, example of agape love, right? You're standing there, and what you're saying in your vows to the other person is, I'm going to prefer you for the rest of my life, which means your needs now come above my needs. And then the other person says that back, and sane people, rational people do this. <laughs> like, okay, I'm now making your needs more important than my needs. And what the Bible calls this marriage is unity. It calls it unity. Now, what we may not pull together or pick together is that the reason why marriage is unity or the way marriage becomes unity is by living this out. The way that you become one in marriage And to the extent that you do this is to the extent that you will experience oneness and intimacy in your marriage. Where marriages fracture, where the relationship breaks down, where this ultimate beautiful experience, like this picture of what love can be on earth, where it breaks down usually is when one party starts to care about their needs and starts to defend because the other person's imperfect. And it's like, well, you're not meeting my needs, so I need to fill my needs. And so now I'm going to work on my needs, and you can work on your needs. And then there's no unity in that marriage. It's two people cohabitating and living together, but really just taking care of themselves. That's the bad version of marriage. But what God intended for marriage is exactly what we're seeing here Jesus and the Father do where it's a prioritization of somebody else's needs, and that's how you live life. Where you say, now what you want is more important than what I want. And so, in a strange way, ultimately, my will now becomes, to some extent, your will and your desires. And you do this cross thing, and the blending between the two people becomes so extreme that it's called unity. Where, similar to the Godhead, There's differentiation in person, but it's called one. It's different, obviously. Don't throw me out as a blasphemy, but as a blasphemer. (laughs) But this is the imagery that we get in marriage, and there's a reason why we get this imagery in marriage. It's because it's an image of the Godhead that we're experiencing right now in this scripture. And so there's this marriage at its fullness is a beautiful thing. It's the coming together of two lives, and the way those two lives come together is real sacrifice from one to the other, saying, like, I will prefer your needs, and I will prefer your needs. And by the way, this can happen in friendship, too. This is the way intimacy happens in relationship. 
is when you, when you choose to prioritize the other person over the other. Now, the crazy thing about this is in the same way that in marriage, this is the key to a great marriage and experiencing intimacy in your marriage, guess what? It's also the key to writing your story with God. It's also the key to having intimacy with your God. There's no free intimacy with God. If you want the fullness of the joy that Jesus is talking about in John 15, where he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. I have told you this so that your joy may be, my joy may be in you. The invitation of the Christian life is to enter into this kind of relationship with God, where there's this, there's this prioritization of him, and he meets your needs. And to the extent that we're able to do that as his disciples is to the extent that we get to live in the joy of Jesus and the extent that we get to understand who he is and have him unveil his heart to us and have moments like Christina Gerardo's where she's saying like, thank you, God, that my story is also your story. How does that happen? That happens by choosing Cal when you don't want to. That's how that happens. I don't want to do this, but I want to do what you want to do more than I don't want, whatever. (laughs) That's how intimacy with Jesus happens. And so I was struck today, even as we were singing worship songs, because I was thinking like, anybody who knows me knows I love worship. Oh my gosh, I I love worship. Like getting 20 plus people together in my living room, and worshiping our hearts out for hours is probably one of my favorite things to do on earth. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. What I was thinking about as, I, as we were doing that, I was thinking about like, if worship and prayer doesn't turn into obedience and sacrifice, are, are the things that I'm praying and saying in my deepest cry of God, I want you with everything that I am, are they going to go anywhere? Like, in the story with Jesus and his disciples, he says, hey, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation, so that you can overcome, so that you can be with me in my hardest moment. There's a so that on the other side of that that is the ultimate prize, right? And, and there's this, there, in one sense, prayer is a destination in itself because it's communion with God and it's beautiful. But in another sense, there's a, a filling and an empowerment that happens in the, point, in, the, in the moments of prayer and worship that are supposed to compel us out in a way where we then take it out into the world and we make hard choices for God. And as we make hard choices for God, all of a sudden our whole storybook is written, interweaved with his, where union with God is the characteristic of our life. In my marriage, Suki and I, from time to time, of course, will come up with, with something where we go like, hey, do you remember when dot, dot, dot? And we're like, oh my gosh, yeah. Do you remember when we decided to stay in Rome on our honeymoon and not go to the rest of Italy? And like, 
do you remember that? And like all the pizza we ate and the gelato we ate and how much fun we had. Do you remember the first apartment we lived in that was like so mold ridden and like when we found out, we opened the closet and we looked and we we're like, oh, that's why I've had allergies persistent for like nine months, right? Do you remember how, do you remember how hard it was at Kylie's birth? <laughs> It was, so our second child was a 10-pound baby. Yeah. So, but that was also a crazy moment for me. When I, when I watched Suki going through this thing, I left the hospital room, and my mom was in the, in the hallway, and she's like, how is everything? I'm like, she's fine. I got like half a sentence out, and I burst into sobbing because it was so intense what had just happened in there. <laughs> But like, I was like, you know, like, I was there. We were there. <laughs> Wait, what happened? We were there, we were there together. <laughs> we were there together for all of this stuff. Do you remember when that friend betrayed us and it ripped our heart out and, and we cried together? Do you remember when we used to have those gnarly fights and then like right in the middle of our heated argument, it felt like we just erupt into laughter? Like, do you remember when, like there's so much of the do, do you remember when and in each one of those, there's this like nugget of life gold and there's this nugget of like, I got to see you in that situation you know, laugh your head off or cry intensely or overcome in a way that I was like blown away by or I was not doing well and I saw you, you comforted me. Like there's these life events one after another when you're living in a life where I lay down my life for you and you lay down your life for me. And so there's this richness of history that you look back on and you go, literally our story, I don't, I don't know how you would pull my story apart from Suki's right now. You couldn't do it. You, you, couldn't, you could not do it. And the life that we're supposed to live with God is exactly the same. It's exactly the same. It's where you look back and you're like, I don't even know where you ended and I began in that situation. Like, do you remember when we went through this thing together and it was like, oh yeah, you know, like I preached the best sermon of my life that day and was that you or was that me? Like, I, I'm pretty sure that was mostly you, but like, did I have a part of that? Like, where did that, where did that thing happen? You know, like when, when I was, when I was like really sorrowing and down and, you know, like you were there for me. You were the comforter in that moment. I got to, I get to, I know your name in the Bible means comforter, but in that exact moment, I now have so much faith for anything that I could go through in the future because when my dad died, you comforted me in a way that I didn't know could happen. That's a real one for me. When my dad died a few years ago, he was my hero. I thought I was going to be shredded for years. And I had these like three deep, intimate, sobbing moments with Jesus, and I was good. 
There's a couple of, like, the way he came in and the way he removed the sting and the way he pulled me out of that, I'm not saying this is a recipe book, like, oh yeah, like, this is exactly what it'll look like, you know, in your situation. It's not that. For me, this was my experience of that moment, and I walked out with so much less fear about anything that could come my way in the future because I'd just gone through something so intense with Jesus and saw him for who he really was. That's intimacy. That's intimacy. It's something where it comes off of a slide where it says, God, your comforter, and when it says, God, your comforter, something's triggered in your mind to be like, that moment. That moment was when I saw you as that. In every aspect, in every dimension of who God is, that is intimacy with him. Where you see something or you read something and it inspires up this thing of like, oh, I know you as that person. And God, I love you. I was praying this week in my quiet time, saying to Jesus, like, Jesus, I love you for sure. I want to love you so much more than I love you. I want to love you all the way. Like, I want to be overwhelmed to every aspect of my being for love for you. Show me the way in. Like, I'm not sure how I get from here to there. Show me, how does this look like? And then I come across this scripture for our, for our time this week, and I read in John 15, and it talks about Jesus' extreme love coming to his disciples, and he's like, as much as the Father has loved you, I've loved you. Now remain in my love. Stay there. The word here is abide. The word is set your house in my love. Live. Co-write your story. Let's write our story together. Let's live together in my love such that you get 10 years down the line and you go, oh, there's our story co-written. It's love. That's the invitation here. That's the invitation here. And so on the one hand, what we see here is Jesus going through the unthinkable. Right? He's in this garden. Gethsemane means uh, olive press. He's in the olive press. He's being squeezed and crushed on all sides. And the thing that flows in him will be salvation to the nations. And, and you see him here going through the unspeakable for the love of his father first. For the love of his father first. And they have this, this moment of unity where unity doesn't necessarily start with, hey, this is going to feel great and like, no problem. Like, you know, you want to get a chocolate ice cream and we'll share it? Yeah, like we'll do yeah, like that. That's not, like the unity that they experience in this moment, it really costs something. It really, really costs something. And the thing that I would just, in a way that I don't want to like scare us or like, have like a bummer moment, but if we want the pinnacle of this thing, and one of the things that I love about this church is that I feel like I'm running with people that want the real deal. Like, I'm not interested in a Christianity that happens on Sunday and doesn't affect the rest of my life. I want the fullness. Like, I want the real thing. I want every ounce of what God meant 
in his scripture when he talked about this being the fullness of abundant life and being able to experience oneness with God and walk in his will and walk in his power and walk in his love and see the back of the devil broken in this world. Like all of it, all of it, all of it. Like I want to do that to the extreme. And the reason why I love running with you people is because there's so many in here that are in the same place. I just want to remind us again that just like in marriage— People say the experience of marriage and having children, it's always the same thing. Hardest thing I've ever done, best thing I've ever done. To the extent that you dig in and the extent that you like go after it and the extent that you sacrifice and lay down your life, that's the extent to which it's beautiful. And the same exact thing is true of the Christian life. And so I'm not trying to say that we need to be perfect tomorrow or else we're not going to experience any of God or that, like, you know, like, you have to be like Jesus in the garden. I'm just saying that there should be a challenge with us, which is, like, know what you're getting when you're choosing. When you're making a hard choice, know what you're getting on the other side. Know that when I do this thing, what I'm doing is writing my story with Jesus. What I'm doing when I choose away from this other thing is I'm actually choosing for Jesus. And as I choose for Jesus, what the promise is, is that abide in my love. Do my commandments. Walk in my commandments. You'll abide in my love. You are writing this story with God where you won't know where you end and where he begins. I can think of so many stories of people in this church that are utterly inspiring. I was thinking about Joy and Steve when they were undergrads. They were dating, and they were newly in love, and they— we're going to a, uh, Joy was going to a fellowship and they asked her to stop dating Steve while she was in college because they felt like it was best for her Christian walk. And she did it! That's real! And now look at them. <laughs> Christina Boyles. Christina Boyles. Do you know how she met John? God told her to go work at Yelp when she wanted to go save the world at a nonprofit. She wanted to be doing social justice stuff in a nonprofit. God's like, go work at Yelp and recruiting. She's like, what the world? And so she chose to trust God and go to Yelp. And she met John there, her now husband. And it all seemed to work, right? The reason why she's on staff with the Ark is because we invited her in and we knew that she didn't, like, this wasn't her primary desire was to be in the church setting. She wants to be out in the world. She's amazing in that setting. If any of you have seen her out there doing the, she's amazing. She comes alive in a different way. But God told her to come on staff, and she did, and it's been very life-giving to her. I could keep going. There are so many choices of people in this room which have been, I'm choosing this, and choosing this is Jesus— and it doesn't necessarily, like, you know, the happy ending is not always right, like the caboose car on this train. It's like, you know, sometimes you just do it and you'll find out in eternity. Right? But I guarantee you that nothing is wasted with God. I guarantee you that there is never a, cha there's never a time where you will choose, where you think you're choosing for God and it will be wasted. There is no way you will outgive him. Oh, my sacrifice was bigger than the reward I got. No way. Zero way. And the ultimate reward, the ultimate reward is not John Boyles or Steve Yang. Although, <laughs> although, 
although they are glorious specimens. It is not the sacrifice in finances that then enables you to have a lot of money and the reward is the money. The reward is him. The reward is his face, is intimacy with him, is knowing the depths of him, is taking this crazy, mysterious God who's so complex and so interesting and so the depths of him are unending and getting to take the hand of the Holy Spirit and having him walk you through the depths of God to know him and really, really, really know him. Not the know him like the Bible verse, I can, I can quote it kind. The kind where I know him, where I, when I quote that Bible verse, something inside of me explodes because I know him. That's a different kind of know. And that is the reward of our life. That is what all of this is for. That's the great reward. We get to live this crazy life of love where because we see him for who he is, we get to overflow on the world and be that to the world. And that moment of, of seeing him and knowing him and experiencing him and loving him and finding out our created meaning and, and all of that, that's the reward. And so that is what we're going after. There's a unity that comes from this intersection of sacrifice both ways. And that unity leads to the ultimate experiences together and the deepest places of unity with God and intimacy with him. So let's end with some worship. Steve, enjoy. If you guys would come up. And what I'd like to invite us into is For those of us who have been walking with God and you think about what your connection with God has felt like of late and you feel like, I want to take it to the next level. I want to go to that next place. What I'd invite you to do in this time where we have worship together is in a very trusting way towards God, I would invite the Holy Spirit to come and search you and to know you and to ask you what, he, what, what does he want to bring to mind? Similar to like what I was praying in my own quiet time this week, God, I want to love you. I want to go all the way. I want to experience your fullness. I want to co-write my story with you where it's just a blend. What do you want to talk about related to that? What do you want me to be looking at? What do you want to show me? Now, I think if some of us are trained in religious environments, what you're going to be searching for is sin. Maybe God will bring it up. Maybe he won't. Some of the times where I felt like I was just waiting for God to just drill me on something, he gave me one of the best promises of my life. And I was, totally saw him in a different light because of that. And sometimes when I thought I was waiting for a perfect promise from him, he drills me on some area of my life that's, that's, that's mixed. So don't think that you know what's coming from him. 
Just invite the Holy Spirit to search the depths of you and trust him that whatever he brings up, whatever he gives you is a gift and a key that's meant to bring you into a deeper place of intimacy and connection with the Lord. So that's what we'll do in this time. Just give him space to come in and be wonderful him. And then we'll close uh, in in a joint prayer.